Welcome to the Kickcast podcast, episode number 16. Bit of a walk in Australian football, that's for sure. I'm your host, Neil Simons. Joining me is Jack George, Oliver Walker Peel. I've got a special guest, but Aussie Scout, always on Twitter. He's you know scouting all the players and also picked out Mr. Iran Kunda about six months before he joined the Adelaide first team and scored over the weekend. He is 15 years old and just happens to be younger than Jack George, which he's not very happy about. But anyway, <laughs> moving on. Uh, obviously, quite the week in Australian football. We've had both national teams in action, Socceroos and Matildas. Uh, and also, uh, just there's been one minor change, uh, minor change in the coaching ranks. Not not really much to talk about there. Uh, just a certain Carl Robinson has left his post at the Western Sydney Wanderers. But we will start off with the Matildas because they've been bowed out of the Asian Cup uh, last week. Uh, well, on Sunday, they lost to South Korea 1-0 courtesy of a 91st-minute winner. It's really put the spotlight on Tony Gustafsson's coaching system, uh, the system that he employs, Long Ball FC, as I've said many times on this podcast before. Uh, Emily Van Engbon's deployment continues to be a discussion, uh, and also the lack of Haley Rasso in that game is also very troubling. Jack, you're obviously very... You know, educated on the Matildas and, and Tony Gustafsson's system, and twenty games. Tony Gustafsson has won uh, a matter of only four or so games. Um, he finished third in the group in the Tokyo Olympics, won by virtue of luck against Great Britain. You could probably argue, um, and a lot of tactical inefficiencies have been papered over the cracks by uh, virtue of, I'd say, um, this everlasting halo over the Matildas as a result of the qualification for the FIFA Women's World Cup in 2023, which will be held on home soil. Ironically enough, if we did not host a World Cup, we would not be in the World Cup, period. Um, so after that long preamble, I'll hand it over to Jack. Uh, give us your two cents over the discussion surrounding Tony Gustafsson's future. Uh, where do we go from now? Yeah, I've debated this before with you, Neil, on Slack in front of everyone, which is fun. But um, basically, my whole take on it has always been on the lines of we need to prioritise the actual performances rather than the results, particularly considering the um, like the quality of sides that the Matils have been versing in friendlies. But over this tournament, particularly in the last couple of games, I know that the 2-1 win was um, like the second team almost, but South Korean game, like we... It's, you can't really say that the Matildas deserve to win. I think the expected goals was like two to South Korea, one to Matildas. Um, on the tactics, it's pretty weird. Like Emily Van Eggman playing as a, like as the defense, deepest midfielder, again, is really, really frustrating because it, she is so clearly an attacking midfielder in the way she like, she just always forces passes through, which is fine because when you force passes through, particularly to the wingers uh, in, for the Matildas, like in those positions, like more advanced, it's okay because then you can counter press, uh, try win second balls, and the one time out of say six or seven it works, then it's a really good goal scoring opportunity, particularly when you have Sam Kerr. When she's playing as the deepest midfielder, she consistently, with time when the ball makes the hard pass or like the pass that you want the attacking midfielder to make too often. Uh, whereas when Claire Will is in the side, she is very much a defensive midfielder. She can position herself better to help others in build up play, and that just makes the whole team better. So it's been really frustrating seeing her playing there because she's so good as an attacking midfielder on the left side as well. Um, and, yeah, the whole, like, just I guess the crossing thing is getting quite frustrating because essentially 
the positions they're crossing from are making it ever reliant on Sam Kerr um, just to be amazing. Neil, you've you've put me off now on Sam <laughs> Kerr just to be amazing <laughs> and um, to like to just like produce a moment of magic or for the defense to be poor because that the way where you're crossing from it's really deep. Uh, when with one person in the box and it's reliant on like an amazing header, like I just said, rather than actually getting into positions where you can make a decoy runs to get your best plays into the best positions to score. And um, I guess like just like get the run on the defenders, like for the headers and for like tap ins and stuff, like crossing from better positions, like maybe uh, more closer to the box, cutback stuff like that. Instead, just seem ever relying on Sam Kerr to be Sam Kerr and score. I think it really puts a spotlight on where the Matildas stand in, in, in the global standards of women's football. They, they did finish, well, they are currently uh, the best-ranked Asian side. South Korea were ranked below them, obviously, and uh, the expectations were to win the tournament. Teddy Gustafsson was expected to make the semifinals of the Asian Cup. He has not done that. Uh, is his position untenable, or do you believe that James Johnson uh, and Football Australia should persist with them, which they will? Uh, has has been reported in in Fairfax papers in the uh, days since Jack. I mean, it's hard, isn't it? Because it, like, there's not too many options that are, you know, respectable. To like, I the thing about Gustafson is he's such a good speaker, like a ridiculously good speaker, and he kind of had me charmed for a very long time, as you know, Neil. Um, and he speaks not just of like decide very well but he also speaks of himself like in terms of like he wants to improve every day he's spoken a lot about like the mental side of how like he needs to focus more on what can be done better rather than like what has already happened if that makes sense um so it's kind of hard because he looks you you hear him talk about this and he's going I always want to improve I'm always looking stuff like that and all, all coaches do that to be fair but he really talks about it really well but it just doesn't seem he's doing like surely you'd realize or at least uh have like a second option than playing Emily Van Edmond as a six or just like this like span of crossing and it's fine to span like to cross a lot it's from the positions that make it really like kind of unreliable I think the main problem is like what are the options available you know I mean Joe Montemiro has been talked about a lot but would he really leave Juventus to coach the Matildas like in a what would obviously be a bit of a panicky situation a year before the World Cup. You know, like, I don't think he would. And maybe he would. Who knows? Yeah, it certainly makes for intriguing uh, viewing in the coming weeks ahead. And I'll just give it over to Ollie. Obviously, you know, not, I assume you're not the biggest uh, watcher of the Matildas, but I guess just from your perspective, uh, where does Football Australia need to, to go? I mean, they've picked well, all 23 players in the squad were utilized for the Asian Cup. Uh, the Tony Gustafsson has selected, I think, over 40 players in you know the 20 odd games that he's had as head coach of the Matildas. He brought in new backroom staff ahead of the tournament. Uh, does he does he need to do anything differently? Does is it still preparation mode and performance mode? Uh, is there not really a distinction between the two? What needs to happen? Well, at the moment, obviously, you look at the Matildas and you, you think of the players that they've got in that squad. You think you've got some of the best players in the world. You look at the likes of Kerr. You look at you know players playing in the WSL with your Russells and your Kennedys and, and your Catleys and so on and so forth. I could go on for a while. Um, but Australia are expected to do better in this tournament than what they have done. I, like you said, I'm not the biggest watcher of the Matildas. And let's face it, 
being obviously English, I want to see I want to see both England and Australia succeed at, at the Women's World Cup, right? Because obviously I have a connection to both countries. But in saying that, I want to see Australian football be the juggernaut that it can be um, and reach its full potential. And for that to happen, you need a strong male side and a strong female side in international tournaments. And Australia should be that side. At a, at a World Cup, at a home World Cup next year, you know, they've got every every chance to be to, to, to go well, maybe reach the quarterfinals, semifinals. You know, they went far in France. They could have gone, they probably should have gone further in the tournament just gone. Um, but obviously, the, the World Cup's a bigger tournament than, than the Asian Cup, but it's not ideal preparation for what's going to be a massive, massive tournament. So whether it's a change in, change in coach, whether it's a change in backroom staff, whether it's a change in personnel out there on the pitch, something has to change. But it, they, obviously you don't want to jeopardise such a huge tournament, especially on home soil, because if there's one thing we know about the Australian public and the Matildas, they'll get right behind. They'll get right behind the Matildas. And it's great to see that. And we know that. We can take that for granted as people in Australia. We can go, right, well, we know the Australian public is going to get right behind, our, you know, right behind the side. It's just about having something in place so Australia can really push on at that tournament. Um, Gustafsson, I remember watching at, at the Olympics, and all you saw on Twitter was, you know, everyone almost, well, you know, loving Gustafsson and how much he's done, and watching every game at the, um, for the Matildas at the Olympics. You know, they played some really good football, and um, obviously they had a really good game against Great Britain. Re- relied on the brilliance of Sam Kerr to get them through, but they've got all the hallmarks to be a decent side, or all the potential to be a really, really good side, and almost a powerhouse in women's international football. They just need to make sure all the stars align. They've got time to do that before the World Cup, but is it panic stations? Slightly. I don't think all the alarm bells are ringing, but they've got to get something sorted and, and pretty soon for the World Cup, I reckon. Absolutely. Um, I guess, Aussie Scout, or do you want to sort of yeah. lead into discussion at all? I mean, yeah. I guess I mean, we've seen a lot of this across, I guess, men and women's football. I mean, I'm a big believer in actions speak louder than words and Tony Gustafsson's given us a lot of words about what they're going to do. They, they want to win. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. And I'm afraid the actions have spoken a lot louder than those words um, or the inaction. Um, Ollie referenced the game against Great Britain. And I think something that's often lost in the conversations about that game is that Great Britain are not a team that usually exists. They come together only for the Olympics. Um, they're not an established side. Um, they probably together for probably three weeks before the Olympics, if that. Um, so I think we can't come to many conclusions just off the back of that game. Um, and, and yeah, uh, Tony Gustafsson, I mean, you can draw a lot of parallels, um, which are timely parallels with Carl Robinson and Tony Gustafsson. Both are very gifted communicators. Both are incredibly articulate, well-spoken, have outlined what they want to do, what they are doing, what they're going to do very well. But they just haven't been able to actually execute those things in a in a footballing environment um we can only judge what we see on the pitch um and we shouldn't really judge what tony gustafson says we should judge what he does and what he does is played typically usually ineffective football he hasn't got the best out of a really good squad of players a squad which is probably unmatched in the afc um and we've gone to the asian cup as absolute favorites and the reality is the only results we've been able to get are against developing countries whose women's international teams are probably made up largely of amateur players who don't have anywhere near 
the physical conditioning or the training or the full-time environments that the Matildas um, are in on a daily basis. And so you asked if it's panic stations, if alarm bells are ringing. I think they're definitely ringing. Um, I mean, we're just, we're just under a year out from the Women's World Cup and Australia has very high expectations. This could be a real seminal moment for Australian football and Australian women's football in particular. And we all want to see the best out of the side. And at the moment, we're not seeing the best out of what is undoubtedly a very talented group. I couldn't have put it any better in my personal opinion. I think you've got to look at the Spatilda side, look at the qualities, look at the coaching, look at uh, everyone involved. And you look at someone like Courtney Vine, right? She's got a run in, in this tournament and she hasn't been selected in any previous camps. Um, why is that being made? Briley Henry brought in for the two past camps. I haven't seen anything of her in this camp. Uh, she wasn't even in the squad. Um, someone like Jessica Nash has never been involved in a senior Matilda's camp at all. Uh, not even for, you know, a friendly, you know, camp at all. She's never had that exposure. She's now on the bench for Sydney FC's A-League women's seat, a team, if I'm not mistaken, uh, as a right back. So, you know, throwing her in in the starting lineup against uh, USA uh, was probably a misfortune that, that Tony Gustafsson has made. And it's really typified his tenure at the helm of the Matilda setup. However, I do believe that when the Matildas are on fire, they're on fire. We saw that against Brazil in that first game. They performed very well. Uh, but, you know, again, I think it's a, it's sort of, it's haphazard in, in, in many ways. But uh, just, just describe another very calamitous situation, not as calamitous as, as the Matildas as the Western Sydney Wanderers. Uh, they departed with coach Carl Robertson on Sunday afternoon. Uh, he has been relieved of his duties, leaving uh, everyone to question who is going to take the head coach role of the Western Sydney Wanderers. Uh, I put it on Twitter in like last month, like the late early December. Mark rooted to Western Sydney Wanderers, anybody? Met with utter disdain, contempt, and every word under the sun to describe that potential coaching appointment. Little did they know I am Mystic Mac. I make these decisions um, and I have forward thinking uh, in Australian football. Mark Rudin was announced as the West Sydney Wanderers manager yesterday uh, until the end of the 2021-2022 season. I'll start off with um, Aussie Scout here. Now, it's a very intriguing appointment. He obviously left Western United under intriguing circumstances. Is he the one to turn the Wanderers' fortunes around? Um, It's hard to say at the moment whether he's, he's the one because... Um, we should remember that Carl Robinson came to the Wanderers having done a really brilliant job at, at the Newcastle Jets, having almost got them into the finals, having to put, put together a really good run and got the best out of a group of players that was doing really poorly when he took the role. Um, the one thing we should say about Mark Rudin, and which seems to be lost in a lot of the discussions around his appointment, is he did a really brilliant job at Wellington. He did a really good job under difficult circumstances in Western United's first season. And... He also um, really plied his trade and, and, and learned how to coach um, in the MPL, where he, he also did a really good job. Um, obviously, um, there's sort of circumstances regarding Mark Rudin as an individual, but um, he's someone who seems to be a passionate person, who seems to like try and get the best out of his players. And I don't know, any cha change... Change altogether is necessary at Western Sydney Wanderers. So I think you can't probably do any worse than what they were doing already. I mean, tactically, 
the team the team to start the season has been inept in a lot of regards. They're not getting the best out of what is a really talented group of players, similar to what we said about the Matildas, really. So change was needed and you probably can't do any worse than what they were doing. Um, hopefully, for the sake of the club and the league, Mark Rudin um, and Gary Van Egmond, who also just um, got a job and got the job as the assistant coach, can turn um, the club's fortunes around. Jack, I was at the, the press conference to announce Rudin's uh, signing yesterday, and um, George Clark from AAP really, as Rids Rigari said, went in with literally two barrels and a machete. Um, it was honestly surprising viewing. I think some of what Ollie would see in Britain a lot because the, the British press are scathing and I think George is of that background. Uh, he said this, you went in all with Carl, you gave him full control of the football department and then you allowed him to crash it into the wall, basically. Why did you give him all that rope? And then later in the press conference, he basically said to uh, Rudin and, and John Satsumas, who's the CEO of the Wanderers, um, the club's a basket case. Uh, so very, very strong words. I think strongest we've seen surrounding the sentiments surrounding the Western Sydney Wanderers. And, and I'll posit this to you, Jack. Uh, a lot has been made about a director of football, the implementation of a director of football, uh, JT's seeming, uh, maybe, maybe it doesn't even rest with him, the decision to appoint a director of football. But we've seen Tony Popovich had full oversight of the football department when he was the manager of the Wanderers. You know, he obviously achieved quite a lot. Uh, also, they gave it to Marcus Babel uh, and also Carl Robinson most recently, Joseph Gombau. Uh, Mark Rudan basically was the, he basically built the West United up from scratch. They made the finals in their first season. They played some very nice football at times. The second season, they had, I think, a run of six games away and they lost all of those six, which is very unfortunate. But he is someone who likes to take the mantle and, and institute change on the park and also in the back room. Uh, his personality has certainly gotten in the way of some things in, in the past, has been well documented. Uh, but what needs to change at the Wanderers? It's just, is it a short-term fix, long-term pain, as we've seen in, in recent years? Maybe. I don't know. I think that, so... When they started the press conference, they spoke of believing in the coaching system. That was before George um, was uh, asked all those questions, which are really funny and good. But <laughs> um, he, what, <laughs> what? No, it's just, I just couldn't believe the, the stuff that was being said. Literally, if you had a Wanderers fan in that, if you had a Wanderers fan in that press conference, he would have, uh, that, 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 that coach in question or fan in question would have asked the exact same questions, but uh, continue. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. But so they spoke of believing in the coaching system. And the thing is they brought in Tony Popovich as their first manager and he's very much the club. So he comes in and he takes control of everything and it works and you get two to three seasons, two to four seasons, maybe of guaranteed success. So it could be an aftermath of that thing where they go, well, it worked with Popper. So why shouldn't it work in the future? But the problem is the unsustainability of bringing in another manager who would then go, well, these six players, these whole six players of the starting 11, I don't want them. Spend half a season, like, I don't know, just playing like, you know, let's write off this season. It's fine. Next season, sign uh, six new players to the squad and or like even seven, eight new starters to the squad. It becomes extremely unsustainable to have different culture every single season, to have different key players every single season. And it's you see a similar thing at, for example, Everton, where they've been seeing that they, they give full control to a manager, 
and there's no the, the manager makes all these decisions like even look at like Rafa Benitez gets rid of Luca Digne and then gets sacked a week later or you know a few days later like it doesn't really make much sense and I just think that believing the coaching system is one thing but if you look at the most successful clubs of the last few seasons say Sydney FC and Melbourne City even I'm not sure exactly their situation with director of football but they have maintained a similar at least personnel within their squad a similar culture within their squad and maybe not the exact same system but a very similar formation so you get those kind of like key points those like pillars so you come into sydney fc come into melbourne city and you go this is how we're going to play and i know that because i've watched them with wanderers it's very uncertain it would make it quite hard to sign players i think if you're going like what were they going to bring and I just don't see how there's any long-term success guaranteed off the back of if Mark Rodin comes in, does well, and then he leaves. It's a, What's going to happen next? What's the next deployment? Because the thing with Tony Popovich is he can't really – he's we've seen it with every club he's been at. You can't replicate his success because his methods are so strong and so, like, overarching of the club. So maybe with Mark Rodin we can see, like, someone – he comes in, does well, and then someone can follow on from that and maintain those similar style of play, that similar style of, like – uh, the culture and maintain a few key players. But that's the key thing because that you can't believe in a coaching system and have it because of one coach 10 years ago won you the Asian Cup and was very, very successful. Sorry, Asian Champions League and was very, very successful. You know, that's not that's not why you should believe in the coaching system. I personally believe that most teams should believe in the director of football of system. That's just my, like, opinion. Uh, and people can follow that or not. But I just think that with this success, sorry, lack of success over the last decade pretty much you know like they can't keep on doing it the same way essentially and that's what a lot of it's not a unique opinion i'm just saying it now for no reason insanity insanity is a definition of doing something uh, time and time exactly, again yeah. and i think you've adequately described what insanity is and insanity uh was definitely reflected in the performance on the weekend against the brisbane raw and i'm gonna hand it to ollie purposefully for the uh for the final uh, point of discussion you watched that game against the Glory. You saw the dreadful football that was played. 4.2 XG was conceded and 3-0 was a scoreline. That is horrific, horrific viewing. And I'm sure it was horrific viewing for any Wanderers fan. And, and Ollie, you were there for Carl Robinson's last press conference. Uh, yeah. What would you take away from that game in general, the whole complexion of everything and just Bernie and Beattie and Tommy Hebert up front is just a really horrible combination from what I gauge. As much as I love football, right, Ash Barty was on at that same time and having to watch that over watching history being made in Australian sport was was kind of interesting. But they were utterly abject, the Wanderers, um, and they are a massive club. Everyone knows that. But it's like Jack said, you can't do the same things, expect different results. You can't do that because how is it going to work for you? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be the same issues. And honestly, Nikola Miliuznic was that good how he only scored twice and didn't absolutely fill his boots was unbelievable. If if the Western Sydney, uh, sorry, if Brisbane Raw woke up and decided to be clinical, that could have been seven, eight, nine nil up there. They were that good, and Western Sydney were that poor. They had no plans for uh, for for anything that Brisbane were trying to do. The ball in behind Miliusnich was there. You know they had Akbari who made easy runs and was allowed to just almost walk the ball in. Um, they should have won seven or eight. Um, and then being there for his, for his last press conference, I sort of had an inkling at that point that he would go. And you, you could just hear in his voice how, he, you know, you had a look at the Georgievsky press conference, like pitch side, and you had, and you saw 
the press conference that I was in, um, like the official post, and he was saying the same things, like, I'm going to get time to turn this round. You know, we played well. You know, we're not far off when you can see that they are quite far off. He, he wasn't the right man to take Western Sydney forward. Um, and it's a shame because obviously said he has done so well in previous jobs, but Western Sydney, it never really worked out for him. Um, and they needed to move forward. You, you can't keep performing that same way um, and expecting different results. I, I had a look at it. I had a search of it. And if you have a look, aside from that game against Melbourne City, where they scored two in the first 10, 15 minutes, whatever, their earliest goal in a game was in the 43rd minute which was a Bernie Abini goal against the Newcastle Jets, a game that they started awfully. And that's in the league. They cannot start a game quickly at all. They're so, so slow. They can't attack. They can't defend. And there's no wonder why they're not winning football matches. Because they're just not they're just not good enough it's well below standard i know jack's got something to say on the game being the statistician that he is just after i've got the chance to to say my piece but they're such a proud club they're such a massive club set on the foundations of what tony popovich did almost 10 years ago when i first came to the country that was they were the team they, they were one of the best teams to watch they won the champions league and you're thinking wow western sydney and now there's such a shadow of that side due to mismanagement due to support play. I mean, they've got a good team, but I mean, they've got so many brilliant players mixed with so many average players. Um, and it, it's, it's a really weird one because the best players that, that, that they have on CV wise have the, you know, they have the best CVs in the league, but some of the other players in that team, you know, wouldn't look out of place in NPL New South Wales, I wouldn't think. So it's weird to have that mixture. Um, and it's a really interesting one for for Western Sydney because it's an appointment that's going to shape their next few years, and, it, and they've got they've got to make sure it's the right one. So it's a big, you know, couple of years for Mark Rudan, I reckon. Yeah, Miller Miller Usnic had two point six six expected goals, which basically means like, <laughs> he scored almost three, and coming from an individual player is just a ridiculous amount of chances. Like to be honest, yeah, to be honest, I I thought that would have been higher. I haven't, I haven't yeah, watched I, that game. I thought it would have been higher. There's a difference as well between, like, I remember, like, the Trent Bahaja. That was, like, the second chance he had when he ran the goalkeeper. That that was, like, really low because um he took it into a poorer position. So it doesn't actually – it measures it from the shot. So he, I, I didn't watch the game, but he could have had, like, chances where he is in a great position and maybe shoots at the wrong time and that gets marked as lower. But it's just ridiculous for us to let a lone player have 2.7. That is – Yeah, um, I mean, he scored twice. Scored yeah. twice, hit the bar – and then had one chance where he was literally one-on-one -on -one and somehow missed it. I thought he would have had closer to three or four than two point. Yeah. I mean, two point six six is quite close to three, but I thought it would have been more than three. I would have thought That's three the most five, I've ever maybe. seen from individuals, to be honest. He, he should have had more. He, he could have had four or five. Um, and they, they had no plan for him. And his it's, it's interesting to say, because he was man of the match by a fair way, his lack of a clinical nature in that game has spared the blushes of, of Western Sydney, but not to a point where Carl Robinson could say his job, uh, say, uh, have his job saved. And Western Sydney have got to move forward with someone else, and time will tell whether Rudan's the right man to take him forward. Time will tell, most definitely. And I think it's it's really sort of puts into focus the, the system that the Wanderers have to employ 
They've got so many good players, but it's like when you have too many ingredients to cook with and you do too much of something and then uh, too little of the other, uh, it really just creates something horrible. It's ironic that um, under Gary Van Egmond and Labano Haliti, uh, they performed, uh, well, better than, than they have under uh, Carl Robertson's style of football. But I, I will leave it to, to Ozzy Scout if he's got anything else to say on this uh, issue. Yeah, just to just to follow on from what Ollie said um, and to borrow an analogy that I think Mark Bosnich used yesterday um, on SEN Radio. The Wanderers have all the gear and no idea. Um, <laughs> they have a fantastic academy system, which is on par or better than probably anything else in the country. They have um, they have Western Sydney, which is a hotbed of talent, which probably has produced the best footballing talent we've ever seen in this country. Um, they have a lot of excellent players. They have Steven Ugarkovic, who's probably been one of, if not the best midfielder in the A-League over the last two or three years. They have Tom Ahmed, who was a clinical striker at Wellington last season. They have Socceroo after Socceroo, but they're just not putting it together in a, in a cohesive form, which um, is capable of producing results. And honestly, like Mark Redan really couldn't ask for anything more to come into a job. He has what is probably on paper the best squad, if not... And if it's not the best squad, it's one of the three best squads in the league. Um, he doesn't need anything else. It's just like, it's it'll, his results will be a reflection on his ability to manage players and to and to get the best out of players because it's not as if he's Nick Montgomery with a squad, a young squad, an inexperienced squad. He's got a really good squad, so it'll be really interesting to see what he can get out of this squad. Most interesting it will be, and. What's interesting is the Socceroos game against Oman, uh, which you you'll be listening to this podcast either before or after. But if it's before, it's like, oh, we hope we get a good result. If it's after, woohoo! Or this is really bad, and we are gonna maybe not qualify for the World Cup. But uh, we'll, we'll definitely, we'll, we'll move into the sort of game that was on uh, Thursday evening in front of twenty seven thousand at Melbourne Rectangular Stadium, uh, redacted Amy Park for a reason. Uh, as uh, you've, of course, Ollie, you, you would have seen there was nothing to do with Amy Park. The Amy Park does not exist at AFC's eyes, which is very yeah. fair. Oh, uh, it's weird, <laughs> isn't it? It's weird. It's, it's like you look it's, around the ground and you see, oh, there should be branding there, but there isn't. But obviously with the, with the AFC Champions League games that uh, Melbourne Victory is to be the same. But yeah, it was it was interesting. It's interesting, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, it, it makes for interesting viewing. But so was the game against Vietnam. I was there uh, in person. It was a packed, packed press box, and a, pre- a packed environment, one of the most packed I've seen probably since the A-League uh, Grand Final of 2021. 20- uh, 4-0 was the result. Uh, Tom Rogic scored within 19 seconds. It was disallowed for offside, courtesy of uh, our favourite uh, Bundesliga 2 footballer, uh, Jackson Irvine, maybe alongside Ilo Quall. We'll get into that later. Uh, and then obviously Craig Goodwin, Riley McGree, and Jamie McLaren, the other goal scorers. It was a very good performance. Uh, the lapses of concentration for the first 20 minutes of the second half. I thought it was the best performance we've perfor- we've, we've had in uh, a fair while against a, a decent opposition, maybe, maybe since Honduras 2017. I'm not sure. But uh, I think we'll start with, with um, Aussie Scout again. Uh, We've seen. I'm, I'm specifically bringing it to you because with the, there are two players who made the Socceroos debut, uh, being Joel King, who started at left back, and Marco Tilio, who came off the bench. Um, how did you see those two players playing? And and it's a real reflection on what happens uh, within a COVID interrupted season 
when you're forced to basically uh, play a young players? Yeah, well, um, just to start off the back of that comment, Joel King only got his opportunity because the league's best fullback up to that point, Michael, Michael Zullo, has been out injured for the last two and a half seasons or two seasons. Um, it's a bit of a sad reflection on the state of development in Australian football that it takes an injury for a player to get an opportunity, a player who ends up moving to Europe at 21 and makes a Socceroos debut at 21. But in regards to in regards to his debut, I thought he was he was solid without being spectacular. He did everything that was really needed of him. I found it interesting the way that um, Australia played uh, when they had the ball in Vietnam's half. The the fullbacks often inverted um, to provide sort of a a barrier to counterattacks, which has been sort of an Achilles heel for the Socceroos um, over this qualification campaign against weaker teams that. Um, we get caught on the counter and we can't really do anything about it. Um, but yeah, Joel King was good. He didn't, he wasn't really put in many 1v1 situations, which I think he's a little bit vulnerable in. Um, and he only was in that situation once or twice. Um, he was, he was good at cleaning up the ball, loose ball jewels. He did well. Um, yeah, I mean, it was pretty much a carbon copy of his typical performance for Sydney FC. Pretty solid, um, without being spectacular. Tilio was, was exciting. I think everyone knew that at some point Marco Tilio was going to get in the Socceroos squad. Um, we probably didn't think it would be so soon, but it's really great. Um, whatever you think of the manager, whatever you think of the current Socceroos squad, it's good to see young players getting opportunities because the squad has been need, in need of a refresh for a really long time. We're playing, we're playing with players that have been around the Socceroos for five, six years. Um, as a minimum. So it's really good to see young players getting an opportunity in a not just similar way that it's good to see young players getting an opportunity for the Matildas because you need a refreshed squad. You need those young players to get um, opportunities on the biggest stage. So when the time comes, they're ready to face big challenges. Ollie, you were there in person uh, amongst the, I'd say probably at least 10,000 Vietnamese fans. Uh, what was it like to be inside Amy Park and really soak up that atmosphere. Well, sorry, Melbourne Rectangular Stadium. My apologies. Uh, yeah, you're gonna get, yeah, you're going to get sued by the AFC, mate. Let's be careful. Oh, jeez. Oh. <laughs> you need to get uh, insurance now, mate. <laughs> hey, but let's be honest, right? Can I just say, first of all, before I say anything else, credit to the Vietnam fans. Every time they had the ball, every time they went forward, you couldn't hear yourself think. They were brilliant. And it created a wonderful atmosphere um, alongside the Australian fans. So it really felt as though... You know, I've been to a few victory games this season, but that really felt like I was back home a little bit. It felt like I was back at a, at a Premier League match with the atmosphere like that. The Vietnam fans were going crazy. Australia fans were going crazy. 27,000 at, at Melbourne Rectangular Stadium. In Melbourne, it, it just begs the question, why in the world is it, have we waited four or five years to have, a, to have a Socceroos game at that ground? It's one of the best places to watch football in the country. And... It just showed, um, of course, that was aided uh, from an Australian point of view by a great performance on the pitch. Um, obviously, as you said, scoring inside 20 seconds uh, before that was ruled out by VAR. Um, but from, from then on, you know, you, you, you just thought as soon as Australia got one, uh, the damn wall would bust um, and it proved to be the case. Um, as, as hard as Vietnam fought and as, as much as they worked, they were tireless and tenacious. Australia just got that quality and it, it shows with the players you've got there. Obviously, you've got Tilio to bring off the bench and Goodwin to bring off the bench. Like you can't be complaining at something like that. 
Um, and probably my favourite player as well in the Australian setup at the moment, Riley McGree. Honestly, he's one of the most tidy footballers and one of my favourites to watch at the minute. Obviously, since he's been playing in the Championship for the past year or so, maybe a bit longer now with Birmingham and later Middlesbrough. He's just so good to watch. You see him come off the bench, he's silky smooth, and I think he's probably my favourite player to watch in that Australia setup. So I think he really helped. He, that was a tidy goal that he scored. Um, so Australian football, the Socceroos, they've they had to win that game. They've got to beat Oman um, if there are any chance of, of qualifying. But it's good to see that the Socceroos are back in Melbourne. A great performance, great atmosphere. What more could you want? Not much more, in my opinion. I think it was a fantastic performance from start to finish. And, well, he's in form for Celtic and he's in form for the Socceroos as well. Tom Rogic, my word, he was superb. Gassed after about 70 minutes as, you know, he doesn't really have the, the aerobic capacity often. But what did you think about Tom Rogic, uh, Jackie? He was just nothing short of superb and sublime. Yeah, I thought he was, well, obviously amazing. And, I mean, it's interesting that Aussie Scout mentions the position of the fullbacks because it seemed like the entire system was geared towards creating as much space for Rogic as possible, which was obviously, like, it worked really well. So, like, I think that he gets a lot of credit, but we should give credit to the front three for creating that kind of space and, like, stretching that podic with that pocket not Podic, that's not a word, Pocket, with their vertical kind of runs in behind and width to open up that space. And you saw it was very much a clear incentive because, like, even, like, the fullbacks, like Joel King, I still remember one where, like, he kind of sees him in space and just chips a ball. It's a quite unorthodox uh, of a tactic to chip a ball into a, a pocket or in between the lines, but he just sees him and obviously there was a clear directive to get Rogic on the ball and to um let him drive, let him create space, let him create opportunities for himself and for others. And obviously it worked really well. And... um. I guess it was quite interesting as well because Irvine was playing for the four further forwards in the first half, more so that where I believe he's better, like with the late runs in the box, with um being able to like create space, interpret space. Like yet again, he was also instrumental in opening up the field for Rogic. And uh, it begs the question of where does Asian Hurstic fit in, but it could be after the game that we release this, so who even knows. But um, I guess it, and then in the second half, it was a little bit frustrating to see Irvine. Um, drop a little bit deeper in as more of like a double pivot alongside Aaron Moy and then uh, Jimmy Jago. But yeah, I mean, Rockage's performance was amazing, but it's good to give credit to the like the kind of unnamed runs that people made to open up the space for him as well. Absolutely. And I just, I just think um, reflecting on the game, I mean, Ollie talked about how great the Vietnam fans were. Um, and I think if I'm the APL watching that game, um, I'd want players from Southeast Asian countries and countries which have large expatriate and diaspora communities in Australia to come play in the A-League men's and the A-League women's because we've seen what a great atmosphere that brings to games and how that gets bums on seats, essentially. And Vietnam, there's a lot of quality in, I think, the V-League, um, as we saw in the Vietnamese team. Um, and I think it's a perfect opportunity um, for the APL, for the A-League men's and the A-League women's to really not exploit that, but target that as a way of improving the quality of the league on and off the field. Couldn't agree more. And I think uh, Quang Gong Hai was, was fantastic. I think I pronounced the name correctly. I'm not sure, but he was, he was a standout for me. I mean, just, uh, you know, I'll take it from a perspective, you know, of, of someone, you know, who was there from like 6 PM. It's just so, when you hear the national anthem, it's like nothing, you know, you'll ever experience to, to be at a national team game, is 
you know, regardless of, of what the opposition is, what the circumstances are, it's a really special experience. And I think for all of us to experience that in some way and capacity in the past two months, obviously, uh, Jack and Aussie Scout being from uh, from Sydney uh, regions, I'm, I'm fairly certain. Uh, and yes. obviously myself and Ollie being from, from Melbourne, we've both had the opportunity to watch the national team play uh, in, in pressurized environments. And I think in both, in both times they performed to the best standard in which they could. But um, I have to say, just uh, is wonderful to have the soccer is back home and, and performing. Um, but I think all roads lead to this game against Oman. Uh, which is tomorrow morning at 3am in the morning. If you're listening on Clutch, uh, obviously the game will be uh, on Channel 10 at 2.30am in the morning, which is wonderful, uh, the pregame. But I guess all things are at play here. I'm going to be watching that Japan versus Saudi Arabia game, which I think is at 9.01am, I'm pretty sure. Which no, PM, have PM, sorry. They have some... Mm really weird timings i don't know <laughs> I, i'm i'm just i don't know like the afc do what the afc do i mean i'm, I'm respect 9 14 sorry I don't 9 14. Know. oh yeah i think it's because of the like um what's it called is it like is it is there, it, yeah it's an like, unlucky it's like number unlucky thing. number in japan yeah, or something yeah. i don't know anyway japanese home game so pretty much if japan can get some points or you know i think a draw would be probably the best result for, for everyone involved but um we have to defeat Oman, pretty much. Uh, we have, don't have a great record. Oman have got seven players out with COVID. Uh, and they have no fans in the stadium, too, due to a COVID crisis they are currently, uh, you know, under, I suppose. Uh, I'll leave it to, to, to Jack. What is the result that we need here? We're facing Japan at home next month, which has been announced uh, early this week. Uh, last week, sorry. Uh, everything's at play here. What has to happen? Oh. Neil, we have to win. Um, really? Oh, I wouldn't think yeah. so. I, I thought a loss would be fine. Now. Obviously. No, no, a loss <laughs> wouldn't be fine. Um, no, I think I personally would prefer Japan lose and Saudi Arabia win. And because if Saudi Arabia win, they'll be on 22 points. If we win, we'll be yeah, on they can secure They can secure their qualification should they so, win. Yeah. Yeah. So then if we beat Japan next, whenever it is, um, then we, you know, it's qualified. So I personally prefer that, but I do see why. Even 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 if we draw against Japan, um... yeah, I guess goal difference. But yeah, knows? exactly. Yeah, four goals are so important as well because it say it was like a one 0 win, we'd be on six goal difference and they'd be on four. But instead, we're on nine and they're on four, which is actually really important. But do you, I guess in terms of like the personnel, it'll be interesting to see. I don't think Azad Bayic can fulfill that role as well as Joel King could in terms of being a more conservative uh, fullback, which is a little bit more progressive in possession rather than um, occupying like uh, spaces high and wide. I think Bayic has a fantastic engine and that's his strength, whereas Joel King kind of works better when he's not actually being entrusted with holding wits and holding attacking areas. Like that's actually, for me, that's the perfect position for him is as a conservative fullback. But um, Graham Arnold said he probably wouldn't start. So it'll be interesting to see what happens then. And obviously... You're looking weird now. Obviously, Agent, you're looking weirdly at me, but Agent Hristic has to come back into side two. And I guess, I mean, I really hope that Jago starts. Uh, I don't think Moy can play as the six, but we'll see. Is that what you wanted? It's not what I want. It's what the soccer is want, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I'll leave it to anybody else if uh, anyone else wants to say anything about this game yeah. against Oman. Uh, I'd, agree. How, well, 
I'll ask you about um, Aiden Hustic. Uh, how does how is he deployed? Do you play uh, a diamond with Moy, uh, Rogic, and Hustic, or do you just put Moy on the bench? He was quite ineffective in that second half. I felt. I mean, I saw a meme on Twitter that he was froze for like forty five minutes, which is, I mean, true <laughs> to an extent. But what is the conundrum that we're faced with? Do you think? Are you asking me? I'm asking uh, Aussie Scout. Okay. Um, well, I think, I think as we've seen, it's hard to get all our, um, our creative midfielders into the one midfield. Um, I'm not really sure how I would deploy it. I think Jack's probably the person to ask in in that regard. Um, but what I think we, we can learn from the Vietnam game and we can learn from the qualification as a whole is that it's really important to balance our capacities to, break down deep defenses with our capacity to halt quick counterattacks in, in transition when our, when our build-up breaks down. And I think in the Vietnam game, we probably did that as best as we've done in the qualification process. And I think the temptation would be in the Amman game to play Moy Rogic for stitch. But whether we can do that while solidifying our midfield is another question. Um, which I'm not so confident about. Um, so, yeah, I'm not really sure um, who misses out. Maybe you play Hrustic and Rogic together instead of Moy because um, because Hrustic is fresh and Rogic is just in such great form that you probably can't drop him at the moment. Um, but I do agree with Jack in that we need we need a sitter. We need someone like Jago who can sit and break down and break down um, transitions and stop counter-attacks. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more on that point. We'll, we'll quickly go through the A-League men and A-League women results. Obviously, we'd like to get we like to talk about them a lot more, but I think there's just too much to talk about, obviously, with uh, a certain MPL decision that's been made in the past week as well. Um, Ollie oh, and gosh. I will, Here we go. will discuss about that. There we go. Get <laughs> ready. Jeez, that, that oh. was a... Very intriguing. Anyway, West United defeat in Melbourne City 1-0. Curtis for goal from Stephen Lustiger in Stephen uh, in Nuk- Nikolai Topol Stanley's uh, 350th A-League game. That's crazy. Uh, he's very close to breaking the record. Um, as you're listening to this, uh, the MacArthur FC will take on West United in the A-League expansion derby, uh, which is what I'm going to call it. Brisbane Raw obviously defeated the Wanderers 3-0 courtesy of goals from Nikolai Miliuznic and Ramat Akbari Miliuznic. Uh, in goal-scoring form, you could say, uh, CDFC defeated the Central Coast Mariners 3-2, uh, two goals from Anthony Caceres, who's in such fantastic form this season. Bobo uh, scoring the other one um, with Oliver Bozanich and a certain Scottish footballer who has Australian roots. Um, his name is Jason Cummings, and he got his debut goal in the 57th minute. of. So he was put himself into some really good attacking positions. And I'm going to talk about this game a lot. Uh, a fair bit and leave it to, to Aussie Scout because uh, the Newcastle Jets lost to Adelaide United 2-1 courtesy of two moments of brilliance from um, Becca Mikotsade, who Mikotatsi, sorry, who scored a wonderful goal in the 59th minute. Um, and even on Google, uh, the, the person's name in question has not even been listed as the goal scorer. Nestor Irankonda with a free kick and Hiroki, Hiroshi Ibasuki with the 91st minute uh, header. Uh, you've picked out this guy uh, from the NPL South Australia uh, when he was pretty much just breaking into the first team of Adelaide United's NPL side. 
yeah this is just vindication for you please speak more about the qualities that Nestor has we've seen him play in some games this season uh i've seen already similarities to a, a daniel lazani type but how do you see his career trajectory tell us more about him the, the floor is yours um, well, I'm not. I'm not an invest. I'm not an investment banker, so I don't want to project something. I don't want to project the trajectory of a 15-year-old's career um, when we don't even know if he's going to be playing the next game. But yeah, um, I do feel somewhat vindicated. But he is a really talented player. I saw him playing in in MPL South Australia, and the same sort of qualities that we've seen in in his A League men's games were really evident. Very confident from from the start, like. We see a lot of young Australian players, and this is somewhat a product of the fact that they're not really deployed in, in high-pressure positions. They're deployed in certain positions which aren't necessarily high-pressure. But we see a lot of young Australian players break into A-League teams, and they don't play with confidence. They look like they're playing within themselves. And that maybe speaks to to their mentality or to the the confidence or lack thereof that their coaches have instilled in them. Nestor Inarankunda is the opposite of that. Um, he, he had a quiet game versus Melbourne victory, but his last two games, he's really showed a lot of confidence. Even when something doesn't go his way, um, when he he, he tried he tried in the Melbourne City game, I think he attempted seven dribbles and only completed two of those. But he just kept on doing it and he kept on pushing, and that's a really impressive trait to see in a young player. Um, the ability to bounce back from a failed action. But yeah, he's he's extraordinarily quick, and there was a clip. Um, which I shared on on on, so on Twitter, um, where you can see he's out of the pick. Adelaide in transition, he's out of the picture, and he manages to really zoom up the field. Um, he's so he's extraordinarily quick. You mentioned Daniel Azani. I think he's different to Azani. He's probably quicker. Um, speed and power is probably slightly more part of Iran Konda's game than Azani. But what's really impressive about Iran Konda is his ability to turn at high speed or to change his, his running direction at high speed. Um, I think that's really impressive. He did it against Melbourne city where he, he sort of gassed two or three players and then cut back onto his left foot, which is really impressive to, to be able to turn at high speed is something that not many players have the ability to do. Um, he's very direct. He keeps on running at the defender. He, he's, um, he gets involved. He's not a very, he's obviously he's 15 and he's not fully developed, but he's still pushing other players around, getting his putting his body on the line, and that's really impressive. And he's 15, and we've seen lots of these prodigious young players um, make debuts at 15 or 16. They're not really push on, but I think Adelaide seemed to be more purposeful in their approach of playing young players. Um, and so hopefully. Um, his career plays out better than the likes of T-Boy Kamara's career has played out ah. since he made the debut. So yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's something to be excited about. But it's just exciting to see a younger profile in the league in the league more generally. We're seeing a lot of 16-, 17-, 18-year-olds making debuts, um, and that's just something to be excited about. And to see a player like Aaron Kunda score a brilliant free kick in his third game, I mean, if that doesn't make you smile, what will? Seeing T Boy T Boy Kamara sit up for the Preston Lions this season in MPL three. That's Maybe. gonna be something. Oh definitely. But that, uh, speaking of class. Speaking of uh, young players succeeding, uh, A League Women was on the weekend, of course, and uh there were some really 
outstanding score lines. Uh, Western Sydney, much like their men's side, uh, really bad. They've only scored two goals in, in this season so far, one of them being a penalty. Uh, they lost to Adelaide United 3-0, who are sharpening up to be potential finals candidates. Um, Kayla Sharples and Chelsea Dorber with a double uh, to end that one. Melbourne City getting the 2-1 over Brisbane Raw with Katrina Gorry with a penalty and some you know final 20-minute wild, wild play with Rihanna Policina with a 79th-minute goal and Hannah Wilkinson with the sealer in the 94th. Uh, the, the, the pick of the lot has to be the Newcastle Jets versus Canberra United with um, Marcuson with the first-minute goal, Sykes with the 18th and 60th-minute goals, Harding with 51, Toby with 62, and Sonny Franco 63. So you had essentially uh, three goals within the space of four minutes, which is insanity. Uh, and, of course, yesterday... The Perth Glory uh, faced the Wellington Phoenix, and despite the Phoenix being up, uh, they were unable to secure the victory with Sophia Sakalis, uh, Hinson, Lethjans scoring for the Perth Glory, with uh, Grace Jail and Chloe Knott uh, getting the two goals for the Phoenix. The Phoenix pushing, um, looking to get their first win of the season, and for the for the for the squad that they've assembled, they performed amicably in the A-League women. Um, before we head on to our final topic of the transfer window, uh, obviously with many players making the move in the past couple of days, uh, a lot of talk has been made in the NPL Victoria of a decision um, that was made as a result of the Supreme Court ruling with Avondale FC, who were top of the table in the NPL Victoria uh, following the uh, disruption and also later postponement and cancellation uh, of the season. Uh so this is the resolution, and I'm going to posit it. I'm not sure if Jack knows so much about this. Oh, you just said that you actually do. Um, you don't? No, I was talking about the Perth-Wellington game. Oh, right. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, yeah, please feel free. I was just going to say, I watched um last, not last weekend, the weekend before, I watched the Wanderers versus Perth, and I watched Hannah Lowry. And she's 18. Um, she's like a left-footed attacking midfielder. And she was just really, really impressive. And I think she's definitely one for the future. She has fantastic technique. Her anticipation of space in between the lines is really, really clever. And it's kind of that young player thing as an attacking midfielder where her teams really don't trust her with passing the ball, or at least in the Perth system. But she always makes space for herself. And um, she's fantastic on the turn, I guess, like to run at players. Obviously, there needs to be a lot more improvements in the game. But she's only 18. And the way she also stretches the defense and I guess just her anticipation of space, like the way she scans and like in reference to the players around her and just on the ball, like this like elegant kind of like glue to her foot technique is really impressive. And like I said, again, only 18. So really exciting for the future. That's all I want to say. Very, very exciting. Moving on to this MPL discussion, which you're about to have. So yeah, basically Avondale, top of the league. They are running away with the title. Uh, they've got the best squad in the league by far. Um, they've got, you know, Stefan Valentini, Joey Katabian, uh, Liam Boland. I can go on. Yazid Said, um, Ozzy Scott, you probably remember him from Victory's MPL days. Um, so they come to a resolution, okay? It's been thrown out of the court. Here is a resolution. So eight games weren't played uh, in, the, in the season prior. Uh, so for the 2022 MPL Victoria season, um, the eight games that were missed last season count for both the 2022 season and 2021 season. So three points are distributed to the season of last season. And the, that table continues over the course of, of the however that season you know, goes. 
and uh, six, three points are distributed to the 2022 table. So, for example, if uh, the Oakley Cannons are playing the Eastern Lions and that fixture got cancelled last season, that same fixture, let's say the Oakley Cannons are hosting the Eastern Lions, that same tie will count for three points of the last season and also three points of this season. Now, <laughs> I'm not going to outwardly chastise Football Victoria uh, and Avondale FC uh, because that's not the right thing to do and that's not the, the best thing to do. What's important is to take in all factors in the, here. Uh, why we are in this decision, in this predicament in the first place, what the consequences are for uh, semi-professional football uh, and also the consequences for the national second division, which uh, there's also been chat on, on another podcast, national curriculum about that. And Teo Pelissari really articulated that very well within that sort of realm. Uh, Jack, you've put something in the chat here, which adequately describes what this decision is. Just, just say it. Why not? Just get it out of the way. Oh, okay. Oh, well, I just said the cliche of a six-pointer finally becomes true. So six-pointers all around here. Ollie Walker-Peel, NPL Victoria commentator extraordinaire. Uh, what is your take on this? It's baffling. It's baffling, but <laughs> yeah, we've had a couple of days to really digest it. Um, your thoughts? First of all, the NPL Victoria is a great league, and I, you know, I love watching NPL Victoria. But this just—I didn't expect this. I was driving up to the to the Gippsland Cup, um, which Mornington Eastern Lions, Melbourne Victory, and a Latrobe team are playing in, and I saw this press release, and I, I I clicked on it, skim read it, thought nothing of it, and then had another read when I saw that Twitter was blowing up to see that, and it's it's an absolute bombshell. It's also something I expect. First of all, I'd like to say about Avondale, you can completely understand why they feel aggrieved because they've been denied the chance to obtain silverware that, let's be honest, they would 99% of won had the season not been cancelled. So you can understand why they feel so aggrieved at missing out on that opportunity because every team wants to win silverware. That's why you play football, etc., etc. But for them to then take it to court, I'm not sure. It, it, it's just, it, it's, it's a grey area, isn't it? That's all I'll say. Um, I don't think, I think this is unprecedented. I don't think this has happened anywhere in the world. I don't think that I've seen this before where a result is now literally a six-pointer. It, it's, it's such a strange one because uh, it's, it's so, so strange. It, it's it, it's never been seen before. I get why Avondale have done it, but hopefully we never see it again. That's all I'll say. I'll if you don't mind, guys. I'm gonna just rant for like five ten minutes. So. I'm 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 trying to be I'm trying to be careful about about what I'm what I'm saying. Obviously, Look, I'm not I'm not gonna rant. Yeah. because obviously be obviously football Victoria and NPL Victoria, they've done a lot for to to broadcast the league. They've done a lot for me personally, and I appreciate that. So I don't want to I don't want to say anything that could be offside that could make anyone offside right so i'm gonna yeah. leave that up to you neil simons fellow commentator at NPL I'm not, I, I, as i said before I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> i must say thank you to the, the big shout out to the Eastern lines uh for hosting the gippsland cup uh yeah, at gardens creek reserve um had thoroughly enjoyed commentating the melbourne victory youth against the Eastern lines um that was a lot of fun and uh you know props to that football club for everything they've done um but Look, okay. 
integrity is very important in football. Integrity is a makeup of competitive tension, uh, balance, and everything along those lines. You have squads within the 2022 MPL Victoria season that are capable of beating A-League sides on a consistent basis. Uh, I think South Melbourne especially have got a very good squad. The, the coach is another story, as to Ben Quintas, but you've got uh, Heidelberg, who have improved dramatically. You've got Green Gully, who have added Garrett Abbott to and Josh Hope. You've got you've got teams that are completely transformed, teams that have completely um, been ripped apart. Uh, for that to be a legitimate indicator of how the 2021 MPL season progressed is is is, is quite puzzling. Uh, it's not remotely going to be looked upon within the history books favorably. It's ripping up the history books. Um, I can understand Football Victoria's hands were forced here in many ways by the fact that it went to court. But that ultimately is on themselves for not putting in a COVID contingency plan just in case the 2021 season perhaps got cancelled. There's no promotion relegation for the last season. There was no um, uh, means for clubs who performed very well to actually get into a higher division. Spare a thought for the Preston Lions, uh, who are easily one of the most supported clubs in Australian football. And I'm going to say Australian football because nobody's pulling 3,000 to a semi-pro semi club uh, nationwide. Um, and they had to spend another year in MPL3. Um, you've got A-League clubs as well who are in the lower divisions who potentially had opportunities to get promoted, such as West United and, and Melbourne City that went promoted. This sets a precedent that any team within those lower divisions could have been champions and gone and promoted. It just doesn't make sense to me. Um, the accolade of an MPO Victoria championship is massive, but that's a championship. There's no finals. Um, people need to realize that Avondale, by taking us to court and a decision that's come at hand, gives clubs who will maybe not be within the national second division leeway to sue their way into the national second division. That's why Football Australia have reasons to be hesitant for this. And I'm not saying that Avondale don't have the right to do anything because they definitely deserve to um, state their case, state their cause to be champions. But by taking it to court, you've led to, they haven't, they've indirectly contributed to a decision which is Largely unfavorable. And I can understand. I've spoken to Avondale players in the past week. Uh, they feel aggrieved. They're like, yeah, the season could finally continue, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you got to understand the squads have changed. Um, it's not like a transfer window has happened. This is a whole new season. Players are now injured. Uh, players are now, you know, fully fit now. It's a different ball game. It's a completely different ball game. And um, for the sake of football development in this country, uh, COVID obviously was going to be a major, you know, deterrent to to that and a major impediment for growth within uh victorian football as well for all the forward steps we've made this is a real uh step back in some ways and i empathize with all parties involved here uh no, no decision was going to be made that was uh unilaterally and universally uh you know applauded but in saying that um it's just a complicated decision, which will have ramifications beyond the 2022 season. That's all I'll say. Um, well, does well, anybody well else? Put. Well put. Does anybody else want to state the case? Uh, obviously, from an outsider's perspective, this is 
Uh, unfortunately, not all Victorian people on here. But uh, yeah, anybody else want to state their case? If not, we'll move on to the final uh, point of discussion for the podcast. I just, I, I just want to, want to chip in on that. It's, it's hard, it's hard to say on something like this, especially when you're affiliated with Football Victoria, as me and Neil both are. It's, it's, in, it's interesting having to, having to state something, having to talk about something like this. It's just, it's crazy. So it's it's hard to put words to it. So if we've mumbled and waffled, you know, obviously we don't want to upset anyone at Football Victoria. Just you know, yeah, whatever we yeah. Believe. Look, look, you look. Know? I mean, those are my honest thoughts. Um, I can understand that nobody's going to be able to make the best decision possible, and you know, um, we are lucky to have a division. We are we are lucky that people actually care about this, which is I think is really important. Um, you know, if you contribute to the conversation, that's the most important thing. Continually. Yeah, it's it's just that you know, obviously, while we may not agree with it, we can't really. I don't want to sit here and lambast football Victoria. I don't want to sit here on on this platform and lambast football Victoria or lambast Avondale or anything like that because I don't think it's my place to um, to do that. Because obviously, if I'm affiliated with it, I don't want to be speaking speaking bad about it. So that's 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 where I sit and where it's an awkward position for me and Neil to be in is obviously we care about Australian football a hell of a lot to the point where we want to be passionate and speak about it. But it's to a point where we've got, um, how do you say it? Conflicting interests. The pair yeah, of us. Perhaps, perhaps. Absolutely. absolutely. So we, yeah, this is not, this is not us slating, you know, we don't want to fall out with anyone at football Vic. This is just a contentious topic that we have to give air to. Um, and this is the way we're trying to do it. Amicably and you know, with trying sense. to keep the peace. With sense, with with sense. sense. that's the one. That's the one. With sense, with sense. And I and those are my honest thoughts. You know, if you would have asked me that within a, within a non you know podcasting framework, that's what honestly what I would say. Um, I'm moving on to Aussie Scout for the last point. We've seen a number of players make transfers, um, notably Alu Kual, also Libby Kakachi making that move to um, Empoli, which is fantastic. Uh, obviously, Joel King as well, um, and also Nicholas Bilokabic. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, he's made his move to Hartlepool in League Two from Huddersfield Town. Um, and also, of course, uh, shout out to Jimmy Jago, moved to KAS. Upen, who is uh, the home of Michael Valkanis as an assistant coach, and Tim Kale's involved there as well. Um, your takes on these moves and uh, the consequences of as such. I look well, what should I mention which club he's moved to um, in the second division? SP Stan tells him. Okay. <laughs> you, you, yeah, yeah, I do not speak German. I don't think you do either. You're just uh, good at pronouncing things. Okay, uh, the floor is yours. Um, I think on the fr- like on the fronts of Alo Qual and Nicholas Bilokapic, I think it's really positive moves for the both of them. Um, it's an opportunity for both of them to get first team football um, at a higher standard than they've ever got first team football before. I think something that people really um, people may not have realised with the Nicholas Bilokapic move, he's not the only Sydney United Australian um, Sydney United product Australian goalkeeper at Huddersfield Town. The other is Jacob Chapman, who's a couple of years older than him. And Jacob Chapman has actually been on loan at um, the National League side, Gateshead, um, for the first half of this season. And he's actually done really well there. But he's been recalled from his loan to accommodate Nicholas Bilokapic going to Hartlepool which is in League Two, which is a higher standard than what Jacob Chapman's playing at. So the suggestion is that 
the prospect of possibly getting first team football to League Two level was so good for Nicholas Bilikapic that um, that they wanted to recall someone else from loan to accommodate that, which I mean shows the regard in which Bilikapic is held at at Huddersfield Town, and he's someone that's really gone from strength to strength there. He's established himself as the third choice goalkeeper at Huddersfield Town and the number one academy goalkeeper. He was seen, um, I'm fairly sure, while playing in friendlies um, for the Joeys in the UK, which is demonstrative of something that I've spoken about before on Twitter, which is the importance of um, international tournaments and friendlies overseas for our national youth teams because they give these sort of opportunities. But yeah, I think it's really positive for him like to be, to be getting to possibly be getting first team football at a professional club in Europe at age 19. I mean, you can't scoff at that. That is a really fantastic outcome if that's the outcome that does indeed happen. For Alo Qual, it's similar. Um, I think he's, he's 20 now. He's turning 21. He's potentially going to be playing at Bundesliga 2 level. Um, and SV Sandhausen is a team which has struggled this season. I believe they play with a target man, which is similar to the to the role in which Alo Qual um, operates in. So, yeah, I think for those two players, it's, it's really hugely positive. Um, and, yeah, we should be excited to see what they can do in the second half of, of this season. Absolutely. Uh, any of you guys have any thoughts on those? I think those are really good transfers, and I think uh, Jimmy Jagger's also made a really good move too. Yeah, just on Bill Akapic, if I may, um, I find it interesting that Chapman's obviously been recalled from his loan to accommodate to accommodate Bill Akapic going. Obviously, he had the, FF, uh, the FA Cup game against Burnley, so he's played against Premier League opposition already and kept a clean sheet against them, which is obviously positive. And Hartlepool have had a goalkeeper leave in this January transfer window. Uh, uh, Jonathan Mitchell, who's played twice in the league for Hartlepool, he's gone to Doncaster, so there's a chance there for Bill Akapic again. So there's already there's already one player moved out of his way um, in the quest to get the number one uh, the number one shirt at, at, um, at Hartlepool of Victoria Park. So it's interesting to see that move. Uh, I really like the, the Qual move. He's got to get game time. You know, obviously littered up for Central Coast. He's doing well. You know, at the youth side at Stuttgart. So I, I like that move. And I mean, I know he's uh, played in the A League before the A League men's, as it's now known. But Libby Kakache, I think that's a wonderful move for him to move from St Troyden to to Empoli. I think that's an, a brilliant move as long as he's playing. Um, and Jago again gets another move. Hopefully, gets you know gets chances to play. So I think all four that we've talked about are all positive moves for the players involved. Absolutely. Moving on to some questions asked uh, the 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 K three sixty fandom for. Uh, some questions. We've gotten plenty here. Uh, I'll pick up the best ones because there's, there's actually a lot. Uh, got one from uh, Cactus A Simple Cactus on Twitter. Uh, first, he, he first he says, um, "Tell Tom Williams I'm say I say <laughs> hi. I'm a big fan." <laughs> um, he said, uh, inspired by Boz and Russian Max Russian um, discussions today on SEN, uh, do you guys feel like it's everyone's consistent negativity of the A-League and Australian soccer is good or is it doing more harm than good? And I think I was going to add one more to that. Matty Benici from uh, Talking City uh, also uh, chimed in saying, some general thoughts on Russian's point about the insecurity of fans of the A-League around where the product stands and the scheme of the world football will be interesting. Uh, I tend to agree with Max here. Too much self-analysis, not enough backing of homegrown product. Um, I think we'll do one person per answer uh, just to make it the time go better because I know we're going a bit over time today. 
Um, but uh, who I think we'll go with Jack. Actually, we'll go with um, uh, Aussie's guy here. Uh, what do you what do you think on on these two questions? Sort of the same sentiment. I think Rushton's point is really interesting. Obviously, he's come to Australia as an outsider um, in the Australian football landscape. He's he's English. Um, I think there is a degree of insecurity. I think the main driver of that insecurity is the fact that football is not the one football, the round ball football is not the number one football code in Australia. Um, we like, we sort of see ourselves. We, I think we have a little bit of a chip on our shoulder when we see football because of the prevalence in our respective states of, um, rugby league and Australian rules football and even rugby union to an extent. Um, so I think there is a little bit of an insecurity there, um, that we always feel, a little bit victimized. Um, and I think the way that we see things in Australian football is shaped by that sort of victimize that feeling of victimization. Um, uh, in terms of the constant negativity, I think there are things that like in the league that we are like that people are right to be negative about. I don't think everything has been perfect in, in the A-League this season. Um, whether things are improving or not, that's probably a debate for another day. But I think we are too negative. I think, as I said, because we sort of had a chip on our shoulder, um, we have a sort of grass is always green on the other side mentality. Um, but it, it, it's interesting because a lot of European football leagues get smaller crowds than the A-League does. Um, but because of the NRL and the AFL, we feel that we should be matching their standard when we really, we, we're not competing against them. We're competing against football leagues all around the world. So, um. It, I just I think it's interesting. I don't think there's one right perspective on it, but I think the observations from Max Rushton and also Mark Bosnich, who I think really needs to be brought back into Australian football in some capacity, um, I think they're interesting. Absolutely. I'll leave one for Jack. Uh, Cactus again. Uh, should A-League men clubs look more at female coaches? Uh, for example, female A-League women coaches. I feel like women's coaches are never even considered for discussion. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. Um, I'm not exactly sure why. I mean, you can think of a few uh, reasons surrounding more of a sexism approach, but I won't call any clubs, you know, like I, I'm. it's kind of hard to answer that one unless you're within a club. Um, I think definitely, I think there's been some really successful women's coaches in the past. There are some now in the A-League women. I think even in A-League women, though, there isn't a fair, represent, fair representation of female coaches as opposed to, um, you know, the game but like i said really hard to answer but i mean if you're asking my opinion then obviously yeah, i completely agree there needs to be female coaches at least in runnings and able to you know like present their ideas present their philosophies to clubs totally walk appeal uh why did this is from ak chapman uh why did city bother signing Pucciarelli where when they only are going to play him for five minutes when they had half the side missing for the socceroos Interesting one. It's, it's a great point you raised this. And obviously, I, I didn't watch the Western United game, obviously, because I had to report on the other one. I probably would have rather watched the, the, West, uh, the Western Sydney Melbourne City game, but um, obviously couldn't do. Um, well, it's an interesting one because I think in the A-League men's, you've got to use your import players that you get to the best of their ability. You've seen so many of the players in the past in the A-League men's be imports and be used so well. So with so many of the attacking firepower out, you look at the likes of Tilio, you look at McLaren, um, even I know Conor Metcalf can potentially sometimes get forward and I'm missing one, missing one more. I, um, I think that is somehow managing to escape me somehow. Um, but of course, you've got to use these players and if you're not willing to use 
you know, your 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 attacking players that are it's an import. Maybe you've got to look elsewhere. And Pucciarelli obviously isn't doing the job for Melbourne City at the moment. So um, it's a, it's a strange one, really. So either you play Pucciarelli more, or you terminate his contract and look for someone who is going to play, which I think probably is what Melbourne City should be doing. They're signing a number ten today from Japan, who's apparently played outside of Japan. I saw so. that. I saw that. And that and that and that fourth Socceroo for Melbourne City is going to annoy me. The the player that I've missed is going to really really annoy me. I can just tell. Matthew Lecky, maybe. I've also That's, the That's the one. That's the one I didn't mention. Lecky. Apologies to, to Matthew Lecky. Um, we know there's been some potential unrest in the past with uh, with with Kick Three Sixty <laughs> Tom Williams. <laughs> um, I, he did, I, don't, I don't add to that. I don't add to that. I don't add to that. So apologies, Matthew. Well, Tom didn't say, Tom didn't criticize Lecky. Tom actually criticized the system he was in and said it didn't bring out the qualities. I don't think he was criticizing like Lecky as a player. Lecky performed but, really well on. Uh, yeah. Oh, Russia, definitely. Yeah. He, played, he played very well. Played very well uh, for the Socceroos. Maybe but it's just a system. Apo- Who knows? Apo- yeah. apo- apologies, Matthew. <laughs> uh, this this one from our very own Charnet. Now that the league is going on for a bit, which signings, uh, which new signings do you think have impressed the most, and which have disappointed the most? Um, he thinks that uh, Leo Lacroix and Andrea Mariapa have, have have been phenomenal. Uh, Mahan and Kalavat too. Uh, where someone like Juan Hilenscano has struggled to find his feet so far, in my humble opinion. Uh, that's from Charnet. Uh, Jack, what do you think? That's a really good question. I mean, I definitely agree. Lascano struggled. Um, that's just like done. Uh, Cyrus Demi season. Although we think he's injured, isn't he? Um, <laughs> anyway, continue. Best signings. I think Lacroix is definitely up there. I'm trying to remember. It's been so long since I remember he signed. Can you remind me, Neil? Can you give me some names? Um. Okay. Falami, Falami, Falami's finally hitting his straps. Is that? I, mean, I know. Really I know he's not. I know he's not. I know he's yeah. obviously he he was on loan, but he signed on a permanent, so you could include it. Yeah. No, um, I mean, I thought Gal Sandler was looking really good, but that's like just been a couple of games. It's just because it was so long ago. I can't remember who's signed at the start. So he's new. To uh, West United, Priovic, no, probably Adelaide. Mm-hmm. No one, maybe J- Jacob Tratton. No, definitely not. Um, it's a bit hard, eh? I don't know. I mean, MacArthur already played six games this season. It's a bit of a small sample size, isn't it? Economides is disappointed for me. He's been, he's been, he's been, he's been, he's been in and out. Ob- I think ob- obviously, obviously, if he gets a clean run at things, he's he could be one of the best players in the league. But Aussie Scott, who do you think? He's, is there, he's is probably anybody? not. He's probably not hit his traps for mine yet. But he obviously, could do. Marash, Marash has been good. Yeah, Marash has been good. Really. Cummings has been pretty good, I think. I think he's been. I mean, he's obviously been yeah. one game, but yeah, yeah he's definitely. played up the game. Sturridge, I mean, I, up there. Possibly. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, I would I would say, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, obviously Elvis Kansova has been really impressive. Oh, yes, of course. I think someone course. who we might not think about as a signing, but Jamie Young has been has been really good for Western United. And obviously they have oh, a great... Daniel Pena, of course. <laughs> yeah, and Daniel Pena as well. Um, yeah. Um, so those are a few. Uh, I'll leave it on the final question. I'll just take it for myself because it kind of relates to me. Um, it's to obviously from uh, Lee Brox and Facts, a, a big time favorite of of my previous work on the Ramble Project, which I appreciate. Uh, stay tuned for more uh, Ramble Project stuff. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Um, any words for Teo Pelazzeri, who's definitely listening in? Uh, <laughs> he's the best commentator in the A League. 
full stop, um, in my opinion. Uh, there we go. Now, about in, in, in all seriousness, um, uh, uh, this is for everyone who start who plays in midfield for the Ruse against Oman, and how many strikers will start? Um, I guess I'll just leave that for whoever wants to sort of chime in. Um, we'll start with Jack first. I think I just got wanted you to sort of answer that question before. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it'll still be one striker. I'm trying to think of who's actually a natural striker in the squad. I wouldn't be surprised if it's McLaren who starts again up front, uh, maybe Duke. But I think in terms of the what we did is like a 4-3-3 with like a defensive midfielder and two more advanced like hybrid uh, eight slash tens. So Rogic was obviously really good in the run that midfield. And I think that McGree can come on for him. It's a really interesting question in terms of where Moy fits in, because I personally think he should be dropped. I don't think he played well, particularly as a six. I think when you play Moy as a defensive midfielder or as a deep line playmaker, what you get from him is progressive passing, lots of really intelligent long pulls, uh, uh, an ability to break down a load of defense from in behind, sorry, from like a deeper position. And he didn't really achieve any of those things while it's also a major like I, he's not very good at defending at all. So I think Jago personally for me starts and then it's up to, I think agent Hristic probably comes back into the team and we play the same system with the four, three, three, the six and two advanced dates. Hristic in there, maybe Moy can play instead of Hristic. Like you can't, you can't drop Rogic, can you? You know, you did like, it's just no, no, I, I think so, I'm pretty sure Arnold, Arnold has said um he's going to, basically deploy him in the same sort of system. Uh, yeah, which would mean that, so, I mean, I think Irvine might be dropped out of the team for either Moy or Hristic. I'm probably going to, it'll probably be Hristic in the side. That's a, I'd have a midfield three of Jago deepest, Hristic as a eight slash 10, but slightly deeper where he can come and pick up the ball and progress it from there. And then Rogic obviously in his great position between the lines. And then, I mean, that's fantastic bringing the choice of bringing Irvine, Moy and McGree off the bench to add to that midfield. You know, it's what you want, isn't it? plethora of options uh in droves of course uh mm-hmm. well uh that basically conclu- concludes the main chat on the podcast but uh we'll obviously bring you to kick360.com.au for all your uh you know articles and whatnot uh in the past week we've had a lot of discussion surrounding the west of Sydney wanderers uh pat bruschetto with a very nice opinion piece after so empty promise after so many empty promises how can the wanderers expect their fans to trust them uh which is brings to light a lot of the issues that have been uh, surfaced in the past couple of weeks. Um, of course, uh, the Mark Rudan appointment, which uh, was a very interesting day yesterday. Um, also, more talk uh, surrounding, I suppose, the Australian national team, uh, of course, with the Socceroos uh, taking on uh, Oman next week. Make sure you check out the key takeaways from the game against Vietnam. Uh, Ufuk Talai spoke uh, prior to the FFA Cup final or semi final last week against the Melbourne Victory. Uh, as well, um, and a lot more on, on Kick360 are coming to you uh, this week and in the coming weeks. Uh, just a final prediction from everyone who is winning the FFA Cup final? We'll go around uh, the, the the panel uh, Melbourne Victor taking on Central Crescent Mariners. Jack, um, <laughs> I well, I probably think it's going to be Melbourne Victory, but uh, for the for the culture, Mariners. For the culture, um, and now I haven't given you a real answer. So, Aussie Scout, I'd probably have to side with with Jack. Um, I think it'll probably be Melbourne victory, but I think everyone would like it yeah, to be yeah. Central Coast Mariners just for the fairy tale story. And Ollie, Melbourne boys will be number one. 
that's uh, sort of what I agree with as well. Although, although imagine a Jason Cummings 90th minute screamer takes his shirt off. If he can play. Does it, oh, yeah, if you can play. I mean, I, th- I think I think it will get approved. I hope yeah. so. Football Australia gods, please come to your senses. Uh, that's been all it from Neil Simons, Jack George, Aussie Scout, and Oliver Walker-Peel. We'll uh, get you with some more football in the coming weeks. And also, stay tuned for a new podcast dropping uh, sometime next week or the week after. We'll, we'll, we'll let you know on the social media. Thank you very much. Thank you.